All right, I'll be reading from the scripture today. We're doing 1 Samuel chapter 3, um, verses 1 through 21. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of the God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make this ears of everyone who hears about it to tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Who in this room ever went to summer camp when they were little? Who ever went to summer camp? Okay, I only got one hand. Noah, you never went to summer camps. Oh, two, two? Okay, two hands. We grew up in Eastern Washington, and there was a summer camp. And, I had an unusual upbringing. And so there was a lot of other Christians in our little community and we all grouped together and we all did certain things. And there was a summer camp that everyone went to called Camp Myvedon in Northern Idaho. And it was like a rite of passage to start going to summer camp. And so around fourth grade, like lots of friends, they all were saying, we're gonna go to camp. And so every kid's asking their parent, can I please go to camp? I wanna be with my friends. And so I'm, I'm going, mom, mom, I really wanna go to Camp Myvin. And she goes, great, uh, I'll get you signed up. I go, great, my friends are going. And in my fourth grade mind, it was like all set. It was all gonna be great drive up the six hours to get up to camp in Northern Idaho, get all my bags unpacked, wave goodbye to mom, stand in the line to check in. And I see my friends leaving, like leaving camp. And I'm like, what, like, no, something must be wrong. Like, I don't understand. And like, it was that just like deepest pit of your stomach feeling of like, 
I don't even have friends. Like, I don't, nobody loves me. Like, like just this, like, how did my friends not tell me that they were going up the week before? And like, like I'm now alone at camp which, you know, is like the worst nightmare of a little kid. You go to be with your friends. And here I am and my two friends are leaving and I'm going, oh no, like they were in adventure camp because of their age range. And I was, my, my mom held me back to be, she believed boys did better if they were older when they started school. So I was like always at the top of the age group and the, the age break happened in such a way that I was in junior camp and here I am alone at camp. And so I just like, what are you gonna do, right? Like, you gotta go to camp. So I'm like, I'm gonna have to make new friends this week. I'm gonna go to my own cabin with nobody I know. And I had to face new things. I had to face new things. And I think this is a key aspect of living embodied as Christians. In the series on Embodied Christianity, we talked about getting new purpose, that humans have a purpose and that as Christians, we embody that true purpose, which is gonna put us at odds with the purpose of societies around us. We have a new identity, which is gonna make us pursue different things and also have the power to pursue it out of being loved, no matter what. But we're also going to have to face new things because of that, because we are set apart. So I want to do an imaginative exercise with this story because this is a story about a young boy who was set apart and because of that had to face new things. And when we hear like, behold, I am bringing a new thing in Isaiah, like we tend to be really filled with like that hope of like the, the, the Red Sea is going to part for, for me and my life's going to be great and God's going to make a way for me to have my way. Like that is the tendency that we want to latch onto when we hear, behold, I'm making a new thing for you. And it's not altogether wrong, but the story of Samuel tells us that there's another dimension to that, that we need to be aware of so that we don't duck, so that we don't run in fear when the new thing comes and say, no, that's not the new thing. And God's like, nope, this is the new thing. Here it comes, it's coming for you, and it is for you. So let's put ourselves in Samuel's shoes for a second. When did this story happen? We're going way back to the Old Testament. We've been hanging out in the New Testament for a little bit. And this is in the time of the Judges. First Samuel comes right after Judges and Ruth. And this is a time in which Israel is in the Promised Land. But if you have ever read through the story of Joshua, you will see that when they go to take the promised land that is given them, God says, you can have it. They don't really fully take the whole thing. They leave the job undone. It's very relatable. And so here they are settled in the promised land, but without really fully taking it on. And so it's a mixed bag. There's other cultures. There's, there's the other cultures worshiping their pagan gods. And here is the Israelite early whatever we know about it it's kind of an early temple it's not quite the tabernacle where they roamed around with a tent and pitched it now they're in the promised land and here it is in a solitary place so it sort of becomes entrenched and it's this earliest form this sort of pre-temple temple and people from all over israel come to this place called shiloh 
to worship. And here is where we find Samuel. Now, some of you may know some of Samuel's backstory because it begins with Hannah, right? Hannah comes and she's without child. She can't have a kid. We've talked about this story before. And Peninnah is mean and cruel to her and shoves it in her face. And her husband Elkanah feels bad for her and he, he showers her with everything he can. But ultimately she's just distraught because God has left her behind. Until she prays to God and she gives her the full weight of her being and she says, God, just this is all I am. Like, I, I give everything over to you. Would you please bring a child for me? In fact, you can have it. If you can open my womb, you will show me that you can do a new thing and I will give you the first fruits of my womb, literally. Because Hannah then goes on to have five other kids. So Samuel is assigned her of God beginning a new thing. So just put yourself in Samuel's shoes for a second. You are born a special kid. Your mother has given you to God and you don't live with your family anymore. Instead, you've been given to a new family. And every year your mother comes and visits with her other kids now in tow running around. And she comes and she brings you a new robe every year to wear because you've grown out of your old one. She's sort of caring from you from afar, maybe a little bit like a kid at summer camp, but you are there at camp having to find a new mentor, a new leader, a new way in life. And so Samuel grows up under the, I guess you could say the tutorship, the mentorship, the fatherhood, a kind of surrogate father of Eli. So here you are, you have this new father, Eli, and he's a holy man, he's a priest. And he knows you've been set aside and dedicated to the Lord. In fact, the wording used in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 really talks about Hannah lending. She says, I've lent you, I've dedicated you to the Lord. You are the Lord's property. You were never mine to begin with because you were vowed to the Lord. So now I, I just want you guys to imagine for a second, dedicated to the Lord. When we do baby dedications, do we think of it with the same weight? When we do an infant baptism, do we think of it with the same weight as the story? Because this is using the same language. You are now under the care of the Lord. You are the Lord's property. I, as a parent, am saying, I give you into the Lord's property. That's a pretty amazing statement. And I think we sometimes even in our, in our best interests and in dedicating and doing all the right things, we don't fully take in what we're doing here. Because to have a new identity in Christ is to be in him, is to be his property. And so when we as parents, some of us, dedicate our kids, are we treating it with that kind of weight? Hannah did. And the way she did it was an embodied way. She said, I'm literally, you here, temple, me back home, like you are God's property. And so every time she visits, there's a reminder of all of the stuff. And there's probably a deep hope in her because Hannah's prayer 
in Sam in first Samuel chapter two is a prayer that is rekindled later in the New Testament in Mary's prayer. And it's a prayer about bringing justice. It's a prayer about bringing a new thing that will not just be new for Hannah's sake, but new for Israel's sake, because Israel is in a time that is polluted. Just geographically, what you see of Israel in the promised land is just a spiritual image of Israel. They have become polluted. The time of the judges was a really rough time in Israel's history. They have taken the promised land and then they don't quite take it all. And then all of these forces, they begin to cohabitate with other people of these other places. Their rulers are hit and miss. Things are really rough. And here in this image with this prayer that Hannah's prayed, sort of priming the stage for us. There is going to be justice coming, and it's going to be coming in the next generation of the followers of Yahweh. We have a, such a scene. So now imagine maybe in the image of summer camp, you've come to summer camp and you have to face all new things, make all new friends, and the first two people you meet are two big bullies. That's the story that we get in 1 Samuel 1 through 3. Because Samuel grows up with two, you could call them older brothers. Eli's other two sons, and their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And they're like those brothers that are a little bit older. They're really tight and connected with each other, and they do everything together. They pick on everybody together. They laugh behind everybody's back together. And there's a disconnect between you, Samuel, and your older brothers because you're not blood. And even though you grow up together, they, maybe they point their finger at you as you hang out with Eli and Eli takes care of you. And they can see how Eli's kind of favoring you. This is a, sort of an image of what set-apartness looks like. This is, this is our starting place. If I put myself in Samuel's shoes and I go, this is what it means to be set apart, to be holy, to be dedicated to the Lord. This is what it means. This is the fertile soil in which God starts a new thing, is in the tension place of injustice and a birth of new justice. Through me as a Christian embodying his identity, now we start to set the stage for what's going on in 1 Samuel 3. Hophni and Phinehas are making a charade out of the priesthood. They are taking the offerings and the meat and they're taking the fattiest parts out for themselves and they're just greedily hoarding. Instead of taking just like the small percentage to subsist, they're, they're stealing from God. They're not just stealing, but they're doing it counter to the rules and Levitical laws that, that are in place. They're basically saying, we don't care about the rules, we're in power here. We get to call the shots. Eli, he's old. Eli doesn't want to mess with us. He knows that we're the next generation and that we're going to take this over. And at this point, he's just sort of withdrawn and given up. They're abusing practices. They're not just abusing the practices of sacrifice. They're abusing the women who stand and serve at this early temple. This is just outrage. And you know as a young Samuel, that when your mom Hannah comes, that she is looking at those ladies at the front of the temple and she is shaking her head and she is looking to you, her son, who she's bringing a new robe for. And she's saying in her mind with every new robe, 
this is going to be the change that Israel needs. Israel needs a change because I look around and I see what those guys are doing. And I see what a mess we've made of the most holy things. So you see the incredible power of Hannah embodying the Spirit of God in everything she does and how she's passing it down into the next generation, giving it to Samuel and saying, I trust that God will be in you since I've dedicated you to him. And I'm going to put you and I'm going to give Eli a second chance. There's so much going on in this story. Just in Hannah's look to the two sons and how they're making a mess of everything and her look to Eli and saying, I'm giving this new robe to Samuel. Please take care of him this year. Raise him well. I'm giving you a chance. God is starting a new thing. And it's happening in the life circumstances of Samuel. Hannah's song that she prays against injustice in in 1 Samuel 2, 9 verses 10, is cast this way by the writer of the story. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, what's kind of crazy about this song, if you think about it? When's this happening in the scope of the Bible? Is there a king yet? Nope. We don't have King Saul on the stage yet. In fact, he's coming later in this story. The book of 1 Samuel. Samuel is an introductory character that inaugurates the first king. So we start with Samuel because the story has to start here. But Hannah's song that she's singing is sort of like a a future prophetic song. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. However the writers are crafting this story, they're making you look forward to the king that will bring justice for Israel. And Hannah is instrumental in this king-making process. And what it shows us is that from early on, before anyone knows even what's going on, God is going to make a new thing with a new ruler, and he is not a friend of injustice. Even his ordained structures of holy power, the priesthood passed down from Aaron down and down to Eli, even that is not immune to God's power. We could say even church leaderships, thankfully, are not immune to God's power. Instead, God breaks the powerful and confuses the ways of the unrighteous and does new things with who? With those who embody his way and follow him. So this is a story. Samuel's story is a story about allegiance to God over all else, about allegiance to God for the sake of justice in our neighborhood, in our city, in our county, in our nation, and for the sake of humanity itself. Now, this story also presents a coming of age, a turning point from childhood 
to manhood. For God is calling you, Samuel, if we step into his shoes again, to ask the question that may part you from your family, from your brothers and sisters. He is bringing you, Samuel, to a place where he is going to use you to disrupt things in order to bring newness. We hear this story, and what do we think of? When we hear this story about Samuel sleeping by Eli, is it framed in this way usually? No, it tends to be reduced down to a very narrow, not bad, but a very narrow take on the story, which is, will you hear the voice of God when he speaks to you like Samuel, right? Will you be somebody who listens to the voice? That's all good, that's all true. But zoom out for a second and see the gravity of what that means. Here's Samuel sleeping, and it's in the early morning. If the lamp of the Lord was not quite out yet, what that means is that this is very early, right before dawn. They keep the lamp of the Lord going in the temple, in that space, all through the night so God's light will shine. And Samuel is tending to it, why? Because Eli is in his twilight years. Eli is just unable to care for the temple anymore. And so we're right at this cusp in the story of Samuel's rite of passage, of his growing into manhood. And this is going to be a pivotal moment for him. Just as Eli is unable to keep the light going all night, Eli is now unable to keep the light of justice going. There needs to be a shift. So here you are, Samuel, sleeping, and then you hear Eli's fatherly voice. This is a voice. Put yourself in Samuel's shoes for a second. This is a voice that has trained you. This is a voice that calls you by name. This is a voice that you have grown to trust and to love. How do you respond when your dad, mentor, parent, a really great pastor calls you are you willing and you say, here I am? And you get up and you see what they need. Twice and then a third time Samuel gets up when this father figure calls him. And every time he says, it's not me that's calling. And if I imagine what Eli, what's going through Eli's mind at this moment, it's complicated because Eli has had already a messenger come to him and tell him, your time is over. And so as this voice is coming, here I am, a guiding voice for Samuel, no longer my voice, Eli's thinking, that Samuel is heeding. Something is happening here. This is the voice of the Lord. And here we start to see Eli's incredible embodiment too. That Eli is also embodying Yahweh in being a servant. And as he is speaking, he must be thinking, what is going to happen here? But I will serve you, God. And he says, Samuel, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. First Samuel 3.10. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now this, this is the phrase that came to mind as I was thinking this week, where are we gonna move for this series? Where are we gonna go? 
and I just heard this line come out, whether it's from God, whether it was just from memory, I don't know, I can't tell you, but I felt it for myself. John, every morning you wake up, in the early morning when you get out of bed, start your day by saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. After or during the point at which we're embodying this new purpose, this new identity, saying, I am loved, are we going the next step and starting our day and saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's my challenge, and we're going to revisit that as we talk today. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And what does God say? God gives him the challenge. God gives him the tragedy, as it would seem, but also the opportunity for new life for Israel. See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. That's a very interesting statement. It will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. Think of Hannah's ears and think of Hophni's or Phineas's ears when they hear the new thing. They're both tingling, but in a very different way, right? But everybody's listening. This is the incredible power of the Christian message of the gospel when we embody it, is that it will make people's ears around us tingle if we are saying the words of God in the way that he says them. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family. He already knows it's all coming from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I spoke to the house of Eli. The guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now, I can't dive into that whole statement. That seems very anti-gospel, doesn't it? Right? No more second chances. But I think there's a little bit of a chicken and egg, what do you call it? There's two sides to this coin, right? Just as we have free will and determinism and everything God does, he's in total control and yet I just decided to do this, right? Here we have a house that is two people set against God. The inheritance of Eli would go to Hophni and Phinehas and they are set against God. So God says, I am going to do a new thing. We're pivoting here. We're picking a new lineage, a new inheritance. I'm appointing a new prophet priest. And we're gonna change directions. Why? Because you can never take what has been promised to you by God and take it so for granted that you use God for his blessings. He's smarter than that. He says, I got lots of people. I'm gonna do a new thing. And in some ways, that helps us every morning when we wake up, have our ears tingle, right? To be primed and ready and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Wait, I just said that out of my mouth as I got a bit, but do I believe it? Do I believe I'm actually your servant? Do I believe that when you speak, I'm actually listening? And as we know from going through James, what is hearing? It's doing. 
So this, just as the baby dedication is so much of a bigger thing than we think about, this statement of, of saying, speak for your servant is listening, is a, is a massive statement for us to actually not just make a habit out of doing and saying, but meaning every morning. But it's key. God is doing what he calls you into. He is doing it with you. He is doing it ex nihilo, as Walter Bergman says. God is doing it out of nowhere. God can do things with nothing before it. He can just say, now this, and he's God. So guess what? We have to follow what he's doing. So he says, I'm going to do a new thing. But he's doing it with you if you are his servant. And he's doing it for you if you are his servant. So you see all of the dimensions of what's going on when we embody our Christianity. It all depends on where we have set our heart with God. Is it against him or is it with him? If it's with him, then we both have tremendous freedom and tremendous assurance but also, in some ways, tremendous uncertainty. From one point of view, it's our life becomes totally uncertain as a Christian because I no longer get to cast the vision for my life. But on another level, it becomes tremendously certain because God has a vision for my life and he has told me it will be good for you. This is why it's so hard to live in the razor edge tension of embodying Jesus. Bergman says, there is a chance for newness, and that change is rooted in what? In Hannah's piety, in Hannah's servanthood. It's rooted in the later writers of Israel who cast her song into what he calls a daring doxology that proclaims that God is in total control. They align themselves as servants. It's rooted in Samuel's availability Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. To open your morning with that kind of posture is to say, I make myself completely available to you today, God. And it's rooted in God's resolve and his power. So when we say as a Christian, when you embody Christ as a Christian, you receive the spirit in power, that's the power. The power is God's power through us, not our power. And boy, we get that confused just like every day, every minute. God, what, what is your power? And Hannah's song shows us what his power is. My power is for restoration. My power is for justice. My power is that you might stand in the gap to bring new life and new health out of death. And that is where Samuel is when he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And it makes him a misfit because of his faith. He's now not just pitted in this moment of rite of passage, growing from childhood to adulthood in the power of Yahweh. He has now placed himself in a place that unbeknownst to him until this moment is not just against Hophni and Phinehas, but against his father, Eli, Himself, the man closest to him that has trained him, is now going to be someone he is going to have to speak truth to. This is what it means 
in part to reach adulthood. This is why Jesus says you will have to leave father and mother if you follow me. And some of us just have never really fully grown into that, that, that realization that to be a Christian is to be in some ways in conflict. Because to be holy is to mean to be set apart. Holy is not morally perfect. Like we tend to go, oh, that bad guy is so holy, right? Or I want to be so holy. And what we tend to mean is I want to be morally more perfect. I want to do works that are more perfect. I want to be that kind of holy person. But then we say, but I just can't because, you know, the temptations are too great or whatever. But to be holy is to be set apart, to realize that I have a different identity that comes with special care, belovedness, purpose, and that that purpose can be, let's say in Samuel's case, uncomfortable. Because it will bring Samuel into the new anointing, but Eli into a place of yielding. There's a passing of the baton here. Brueggemann calls Samuel a king maker and a king breaker in his life. Think about it. Samuel anoints Saul, and then he has to take the anointing from Saul and give it to David, right? Samuel must not just embody the ability to bless people, but also to say the hard truths to people that they need to hear. And this is the training ground. This is the training ground for God to say, Samuel, I have a path for you, and this is the first time you get to see it. Do this thing, because you're going to have to get used to this. So we see here this image of Samuel growing into adulthood, and he stands with Eli to bring him in to his full self. But the irony is that Eli's bringing of Samuel into adulthood is going to be the very thing that is going to end, in a way, Eli's own power and his own place and position. How does Eli deal with it? In a way, Eli also says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And this is actually the huge grace of this story. This is the huge grace. Because imagine all the things Eli could have done and how it could have gone. I mean, fast forward, David's running around while Saul's king. David's been anointed. And Saul does, Saul does not say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Oh, David, okay, yeah, he can be king. Saul says, not over my dead body. But here is Eli and he, he sees in the raising of Samuel, in the messenger of God, in this moment, how much will have to change. And this, in a way, is an image of the church. Because if we are a community that has a mutual bow, that has mutual belonging, and can all say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, that will mean at certain times of our life that it will be something for us that is 
disconcerting, uncomfortable, maybe a little bit catastrophic. Maybe it will require a confession that will hurt people around us and us to bring us into holiness, into the next season of our life. Maybe it will mean the giving up of a position because we are not the person for it in the next season. Maybe it will mean, who knows? Just the possibilities here are endless, but the image is beautiful because Eli does do the right thing. What has he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. What a man. What an amazing man Eli is. For all he's gone through, for all the mistakes he's made, for the sons he has and all he's witnessed and the coward he has been. In this pivotal moment with Samuel, he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now let's tear that phrase apart for just a second. What's happening in that statement? First of all, we are identifying who we are when we say that on a daily basis. My identity is a servant. That's, that's who I am. I, I may say my name's Ellen or Riley or Megan, but who I am is a servant of Jesus. Right away, that changes the whole posture of my mind in the morning from, oh, I'm worried about X, Y, and Z thing. How do I get what I want? How can, oh, bummer, bummer. I don't get to have fun today because I have to work, but tomorrow I get to have fun. So I'll put that out there to look forward to and that'll get me through today. Like the, all the things that we do every morning to get us to the next step. Are they servanthood statements? Are they, are they placing our hope and purpose in what God wants to do through us and becoming excited about that? Or are we saying, well, you know, holiness isn't very much fun, but I don't want to go to hell and I love Jesus and I want to do this, but it's so hard and okay, I'm begrudgingly going to do it today again. But I'm not sure that God actually has good in store for me. It seems hard too much all the time. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, John, I'm actually got, gotten really used to conflict and I'm frustrated that God doesn't have a little more comfort in it for me, right? What would, what would happen if you say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening? And then you're in a posture of responding to God's work and listening and expecting and facing. Megan asked me, what's the sermon title last night? And I go, expecting new things. And I said, hold on a second, wait, I'm not sure. And I go, facing new things. And she goes, those are very different statements. And I said, yeah, it's facing new things. Because that's the reality of the story. And Samuel isn't just like, I get to expect new things. Like, what's God gonna do for me today? God's like, you're gonna tell Samuel, his, you're gonna tell Eli his worst nightmare, and then I'm gonna make your life really challenging because you're gonna pave the way for a new Israel. It's gonna be great, but here's all the stuff you're gonna have to do. Like, that doesn't sound like fun expectation. That sounds like I've got to face a storm. And that's what God is getting Samuel ready for, to carry out. I listened to a pastor who used to um, pastor a church out in, in New York named Pete Scazzaro. 
and he was talking in the sermon about peacemaking, redefining when we hear the word peacemaker, what we would think, right? Because when we tend to hear that Christians are peacemakers, we tend to think we're people that just tread really lightly, you know, we're kind of almost honestly walking on eggshells. And he goes, that all that peacemaking you think you're doing as Christians when you're at your family dinner and you're the Christian peacemaker and you're trying to be the diplomat and you're trying to bridge everybody you know this is what Uncle Harry really means and like I think maybe we should all just have dessert you know and like when you're doing that he says that's false peacemaking actually he says true peacemaking is confronting things to bring people together it's overcoming it's going through the hard stuff to the truths that really matter. What makes us a family around the table? It's not that we all politically agree with each other. What makes us a family? Can we really, can I be a real peacemaker? Instead of just quote, keeping the peace. And he's growing us in our life to be the kind of person that can carry that out. In ways we are, we call ourselves a holy priesthood of believers but we also have gifts of what? Prophecy. Samuel here stands at a nexus point between priest and prophet, right? The priesthood that was in the line of Aaron is no longer gonna continue through that bloodline. It's now skipped a beat, come over to Samuel. You are now the priest, but we don't think of Samuel as a priest, quite, Because Samuel embodies in what he's doing, a prophet. Because the prophet is going to be the person now that brings the holiness. The priest can't do it right now. Israel needs a prophet. Jesus said, I will bring us, I will bring a sword, right? When he talks about family. And you have to realize that when Jesus talked about peacemaking and about leaving your father and your mother, that was insane literally insane because family in that time was your complete lifeblood it was more important than water like now we can be like oh i can get a job i can move to another city i could completely disown my family and still live like you know probably can potentially a prosperous life because this is the american narrative but in many other places of the world in many other times this simply was not the case you must stay with your family and Jesus is starting a new thing, just as Yahweh is in the time of Israel. And that new thing requires you to say, as the disciples were challenged to say from Jesus, who do you say I am? So the communal health always does rely on the individual health. There is an individual quality to embodying Christianity, but when it happens, in the community, like we talked about the mutual belonging, it's totally transformative. So many of our growth here today, for many of us, I look out and I see you guys and I think about all the growth that we've had and how God is growing us to what we can sometimes call a new capacity. God is asking each of us individually to move with the spirit. I can't move you in the spirit. Only you can move you in the spirit. I don't stand before you as you at the gates, at the judgment. Only you stand before Christ at the judgment. There is an individual quality to all of this. And he's asking each of you to say, speak, Lord, your spirit is listening. You're sorry, your servant is listening. And to then step out and see how he will part the waters. 
see for you, maybe, and for your family. To see, for us to see as a church, to step out and ask God, speak. Your servants are listening. How will you part the waters this time? And we do this, in the words of Hudson Taylor, as by acting in his will with his means, and he will provide his supply. His will, what's his will for Samuel? I've got a word for Eli. His means, you're going to be the one that says it. His supply, Samuel, I got you. And what happens in the story? Samuel is an admirable character. And what happens? Eli gets to face, this is actually a tremendous grace. Think about Eli for a minute. Eli gets to face the judgment before the judgment. Eli gets a second chance. It's actually tremendous when you think about it. This is, this is credit, this, this helps us think about something like accountability or confession or confrontation. Because when I confront somebody about something that is an obvious sin, I mean, there is no more obvious sin than what Hophni and Phinehas are doing. When Samuel confronts him, he actually is giving Eli a tremendous grace. Walter Brueggemann talks about this and this, these possibilities that are primed for new life. He says, in this midst, there is a season of naivete when a young boy can receive a vision, an old man can embrace a relinquishment. A surprised mother can sing a song. The ears of the conventional can tingle and life begins anew. A new beginning means a terrible ending of some other arrangements. The new beginning requires facing candidly all that has failed. And this narrative does that without flinching or deceiving. That's the power of embodying Christ. When I am fully loved, when I am fully known, and when I am fully given over, I can now say the things that are absolutely terrifying. I can do the things like the summer camp with no friends that are absolutely scary. But I can know that that is the candid facing of all the things, the failures and the successes. And to do that is self-leadership and true leadership. I had a friend that I pray with on Friday mornings and he said, he, he, everyone who was praying, he said, I wanna pray for reluctant leaders, for those who want to lead but are shy, for those, God, who you want to lead them but won't step up because they think they're not the person but actually they are the person. For those who don't feel they are the ones, but that's exactly what makes them the ones. That's the kind of work that God's doing here with somebody like Samuel. The call to Samuel invites a faithful simplicity about public possibilities, says Brueggemann. What if old power were turned out and Israel were again young enough to dream? This narrative by the power of new discourse from God dares to believe and hope the community can begin again. They knew as they watched Eli about the coming of death, but they believed and hope more powerfully than they grieved. That's Hannah. They permitted their dream from God to override the sordid realities 
to which the old arrangements had disastrously led them. From death to new life. This is the gospel. This is our training regiment in every morning exercise. We don't simply say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening with the backdrop that it's God's just taking it all down. And that's it. That's the end. We say that statement in hope that God is always bringing us on a journey from death to new life. And for somebody like Eli, believing that this is a grace, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7 through 13, talk about this. Paul writes, he says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a, a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. That's Eli. Eli escapes the judgment, in my mind. You can see it from the text. But he escapes it through the flames, man. Probably loses both his sons to the judgment. We don't hear anything else about them. But he says, I have a chance. I'm going to take it. Because you don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know if you'll be alive tomorrow. And so Eli faces the music. He faces new things. Just as Samuel's facing new things, Eli is facing new things. And both of them are doing it in an embodied way. Their whole life's wrapped up in it. That's what it means to be embodied in that way. And what we see in Samuel is an arc, a story, a prefigurement of Jesus. It is a model of faith that Christ perfects. And I'm going to just pull this up in Hebrews. If you ever have a chance and you go through Hebrews 11 by faith and you just look at some of these characters that the writer is referencing, it's, it's fun for a Bible nerd, it's fun, anyways. And in 1132, says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. It's given, it's given us the keys to the story here. What should you read this story for? And then it continues on, 12 verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of what? Witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
consider who, him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is not just the perfecter of Samuel, but he's also, here's another paradox, the pioneer. I thought Samuel came first, but Jesus is the pioneer. Jesus teaches Samuel what to do. The voice of the Lord comes to Samuel to bring him into faith. This is the mind-blowing craziness, like the space-time continuum just kind of like with Jesus both being the beginning and the perfecter. Just let that, just sit with that today for a minute. Let that blow your mind again and again and again. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's pioneer and perfecter. He's pioneer and perfecter of who then? All of us in this room. And that's how everything that's happening in our life is happening in Jesus. And how will it look? Back to our Philippians 2 here. For the joy set before him, he what? Endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's just take that apart for a second. Enduring the cross, okay, that we kind of get that. Scorning its shame, upside down kingdom. That is not bad, that's good. What's, what I'm doing is the right way. You're saying it's the wrong way, it's the right way. We have to practice sort of a kind of insanity, a cultural insanity as Christians. Because we have to have the tenacity to look somebody in the eyes and be like, I'm going to do it this way. This, this is the way to do it. And to have faith that that, what, what some writers have called katabasis, which it literally means that descent, is how we reach wholeness. Carl Jung, the psychologist, wrote this, he says, when, I, when a man would come in to me, could come in for therapy, and he would say, I just got a promotion. He would say, I'm sorry to hear that, but if we all stick together, we'll get through this somehow. But if a man would come in and sit down on the bed and lay there, and he'd go, I just lost my job, I don't know what I'm gonna do, he's crying, he's in tears, he goes, wonderful. Now we know something amazing is about to happen. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that send shivers up your spine? To be the kind of leader that when somebody sits down across from you and they're going through it, you say, in the best way you can say it, because they may not want to hear it that way right now, wonderful. Something amazing is about to happen, right? That is the upside down kingdom. That is what Jesus gives us in the story of Samuel, as the writer of Hebrews saw it. And that is how we endure with hopeful living in lockstep through really hard transitions, through things we're avoiding, is we imitate Christ. We imitate Christ, not social media. Like I, I looked on and I saw, okay, uh, how do I do this post for citizens? And you're kind of looking at like how different people do things and you're what? Imitating other people. That's what we do. We imitate monkey see, monkey do. That's what like, and we don't even realize like, no, when I make a post, I should be imitating who? Not everything I see on my feed. I should be imitating Jesus. 
And I saw Scott the painter who did these. He put this painting up and he goes, and I'm thinking, man, this guy's like so multi-toned. This is like a totally different style and it was like an amazing painting. And he goes, yeah, I tried something new. And then he talked about how he had to like white the whole thing over. It was catabasis. He was like, I don't like it. Made the whole thing white and did a new thing out of it. And the new thing, I was like super jealous. I was like, it's still amazing. Like, come on, dude. And he, then he goes, he zooms out and he shows you a reference painting. He goes, this isn't an original. I was copying this style. And honestly, you guys just need to know that because like, that's what I did. That is imitating Christ. He could have very easily just shown the image of that painting and been like, have a great day. And I'd have been like, this guy is freaking holy, moral, perfect. Everything's great about him. Why can't I be like him? Right? But instead he lifted the curtain. He took me through the catabasis with him and then he imitated Christ and he says, I'm not amazing. This person is. And that spoke so much more than what we try and do in holiness. In that moment, that was set apartness in an imitation of Christ, not set apartness in an imitation of perfection or a projection would be a better way of saying it, of perfection. So as we think about this and we say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Let's try and put ourselves in Samuel's shoes. Think about how the writers of Hebrews thought of Samuel and imitate Christ this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for how deep it is. Thank you for how everything interweaves with each other. May you make us better readers of what you've given us. May you make us better listeners. May you make us bold and confident and willing to address people for sin we see. May you be willing for us to bring grace to people that might be hard for us to see how it can be grace through that process. And God, when we receive judgments before the judgment, may we see it too as a grace like Eli did. And may you grow us to be more like you. May we live upside down. In Jesus' name, amen.